The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the Covenant of Quiet Enjoyment Edition. It's Wednesday, February 28th, 2018. On today's show, the Florida Project is herein now included in our official run-up to the Oscars. Even though it was mostly dissed by the Academy, we will discuss the movie, which I will say right away I loved, and why uh, award season mostly seems to have passed it by. And then Atlanta Monster is a huge hit podcast, been described as the first blockbuster podcast of 2018. It's gripping, but it has also been attended by some controversy. We'll discuss both it and uh, the controversy. And finally, can't live with them, can't live without them. Roommates, we discuss a gripping New York Magazine article called Worst Roommate Ever. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi. I'm so happy to be back. Citizens of New York City, thank you for your duty as I did my civic duty on jury duty. And of course, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steven. The Florida Project is director Sean Baker's third feature. Uh, It was done no favors, in my opinion, in its marketing campaign, which made it look like a feel-good tale, when in fact, it's not really that. And arguably the opposite of that. It's a brutal and and in many ways quite beautiful look at a childhood lived in poverty and in the shadows of Disney World along Route 192, the corridor that leads into the Magic Kingdom, where people live in a cheap weekly rental motel. Transients and fly-by-nights mix with people trying to live rooted in meaningful lives. The movie focuses in on a poor single mother played by Bria Vanithi and her daughter Mooney, played by Brooklyn Prince. Uh, also featured in the film is Will- Willem Dafoe, who has gotten award season love for his portrayal of the uh, hotel motel manager who enters their lives. Uh, let's listen to a clip. Yeah. I got a videotape of the kids illegally entering the utility room. It's only second week of the summer and there's already been a dead fish in the pool. We were doing an experiment. We were trying to get it back alive. That wasn't my and, idea. And water balloons thrown at tourists? You can't fuck with tourists. They didn't tip us. Are you serious? No. Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I failed as a mother, Mooney. You've disgraced me. Hurley. Yeah, Mom, you're disgraced. <laughs> and I'm going to talk to Ashley, by the way. When your friend puts you in charge of her kid, that kid becomes your responsibility. You ain't taking responsibility. And you got that one, too? She's from Futureland, right? Oh, whatevs. You gotta relax, my man. You gonna redo my expense reports with your whatevs? Your kid killed my night. I wanted to watch the ball game. You gonna pay me for three hours that I gotta work later? Hey, guys, pay the man for his three hours. I don't have any money. I don't have any money. Dana, I I have to tell you, when I got to the end of watching the trailer for this movie, I thought it would be the last film I would even go see, much less care about. Having seen it, it became one of my two or three favorite movies of the year, if not my favorite movie of the year. It's much closer to being, I don't want to, it's a very original film, but it reminds you more of 400 Blows than the treacly bullshit that the trailer indicated it would be. I loved this movie. I don't understand why it didn't get more official love. But anyway, what would you make of it? 
well, first of all, they must have done quite a job on the trailer to make it look like a sappy, schmaltzy Disney movie. I haven't seen the trailer, but I guess they le- leaned on the rainbow, right? There's this scene where the, the two little girls see a rainbow, and it's really beautiful in the context of the movie. But I can see how that could be extracted to look like more fairy ish than the movie actually is. Yes, I loved it, too. It was on my 10 best list. It was one of the best movies of 2017 in my mind. I can completely understand why it hasn't been recognized in award season because of the kind of movie it is. I mean, it has no stars in it except for Willem Dafoe, who plays a supporting role. It has a completely unknown cast, including the kids. He found some of these actors, including Bria Vinaythe, the mother, the actress who plays the mother, whose voice you hear in that clip, in very odd places. He found her on Instagram, where I guess she's kind of an Instagram star and has this very charismatic feed. And because of that, he asked her to be in his movie and ended up working. So that's kind of what Sean Baker is, is into. That's what he's interested in. He um, he likes making movies that are about people on the margins and that are sort of made on the margins. His His previous movie before this, which was a huge critical darling a few years ago, I think it was 2015, was Tangerine, which is the story of these two trans sex workers on this kind of Christmas Eve odyssey. It's impossible to describe. It's a movie you have to see. But but like Florida Project, it has that very marginal and kind of deliberately small quality. And so that just doesn't seem like something that would get recognized in award season. But absolutely a glorious movie that everyone should go see. Um, you know, Julia, I, th- I felt this year there were a couple of movies that got overpraised and, and remi- that made me feel as though I was in 1992 or 1994 and the kind of immediate blush of Sundance Nation, you know, excitement. And they didn't they didn't feel to me as though they'd advanced the ball very beyond that uh, uh, point. I won't won't name them. This movie has superficially some of that aura. Uh, no stars, as Dana says, other than Willem Dafoe. There's a sort of shaky verite camera uh, throughout a lot of it. Uh, it's um, very brutal in its uh, powers of social observation. And yet I found it fresh through and through. What do you think? Yeah, I probably shouldn't admit this, but even after all these years when I watch a film, I feel like the skills that I bring to evaluating it critically are narrative skills, storytelling skills, verbal skills, like the skills that I have cultivated in my years as an editor. And I still feel very uh, unpracticed uh, as a film critic to the degree that I'm a film critic talking about direction. And then you see the work of certain directors and you're like, oh, that is like a very specific way for a movie to look and feel that I have never seen before. And I'm sure there are types of excellent direction or striking direction that I am not uh, able to apprehend, but I was struck by the visual originality of voice of this and how the movie is able to take this place that is painted a ludicrous color purple, the the motel uh, that has essentially become a project, the Florida Project, um, in a way, and use color and framing and composition to make this place that was intended to be beautiful but has become very ugly sort of beautiful again as it reveals the very bleak nature of the lives of the people who live there and also how their days are not filled with unrelenting bleakness but instead the wonders of childhood and mischief and joy and friendship and uh, a lot of horror all at once. It, I was completely taken by this movie and also found myself dismayed that it has fallen out of the awards conversation. I, I get what you're saying, Dana, and that it's a movie made on the margins about people on the margins, but um, wish it had gotten more notice. 
I guess I yeah. never really care when good movies don't get noticed by the Oscars because it just proves they're good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but since you, since you mentioned the the kind of wonder of childhood aspect of this movie, I feel like that's worth getting into a little bit. Is just how dependent this movie is on the presence of the three children, the main kid, Brooklyn Prince, who plays Mooney. The I guess you'd call her the main character, really. But also her little crew of of kids that she runs around the uh, the different project motels with. It's just I think Steve, when you invoke the French New Wave, I think it's those kids that take you to mm-hmm. that place. You know, it's a little bit like yeah. Truffaut's Small Change. If you've seen that movie, which yes. is littler kids than the Four Hundred Blows, and uh, and it's all about them sort of running around these these somewhat poverty stricken neighborhoods, raising hell and managing to have happy childhoods in spite of everything that's happening around them. And that's a really beautiful part of this movie that wouldn't work if it weren't for these totally unknown kids who, as you can even hear in that clip, give incredibly naturalistic performances. Yeah, I mean, I would have described myself as a kind of uh, Willem Dafoe agnostic before this movie. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure I <laughs> given that loved he played Jesus some... Christ, <laughs> that's a heretical <laughs> position. Uh, but with I, I, do I have strong opinions or feelings about Willem Dafoe going into this movie? Not at all. Coming out of this movie, uh, he gives a he gives an extraordinary performance. And one of the things I like about the movie is that he's the only recognizable uh, actor in it. Everyone else feels very much not only like an unfamiliar face, but like a non-performer, like a non-professional in much the same way that Truffaut worked with kids. Um, Same thing going on here. These feel like real kids having a real childhood, you know, fucking around on the set, being filmed while they're doing it. And so you get this wonderful contrast between Defoe, who's giving a great performance and it's a naturalistic performance. You don't feel as though he's a star inhabiting a character. feels as though he is that character. Having Defoe in the role of this possible source of structure and authority in these kids' lives, I totally agree with you, Dana. The heart of this movie is the performance of those kids, though I would say that that uh, that uh, Bria Vanithe is, is just extraordinary as the mother. I mean, you really believe that she is that person. And I think we have to talk about her a little bit too, right? Because she's both a loving and wonderful mother and a volatile, self-centered, and terrible mother. And the movie, I think, derives a lot of its emotional power from the confusion that that combination produces in us, the viewer. Julia, don't you agree that her performance is is, as wonderful as those kids are? I mean, they are, in one sense, the center of the movie. but, but, But to the degree that the movie is an anguished one, it really is about the mother. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about this movie and that mother character uh, in tandem with Moonlight, which is another movie about poverty in Florida that we saw last year. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you call Mooney the main character of the movie. I'm not sure I... I don't think that Mooney is the main character of this movie in the same way that Chiron is the main character of Moonlight. No, it's more of an ensemble piece, it, for it's, sure. It, you really feel like you have a lens on this whole ecosystem um, and the story, um, Haley's story, the mother's story, is the tragedy at the center of it that's affecting so many other people. But right, she's unruly. She lashes out. She's not um, uh, a, a docile inhabitant of the constraints of her life, which you, or at least I, became very sympathetic to as you watch what those constraints are. Right, and you also see how that personality trait that makes her life so difficult, which you even hear in the clip, her her ferocity and her unwillingness to accept authority is something wonderful that she's passed on to her daughter, but also this 
very dangerous aspect of, of her parenting, that she will go down any road to kind of defend herself and her child, even if it ends up getting them thrown out of the motel, which almost happens at several points. I really love how Sean Baker refuses to judge these characters, and he, he puts us in a place, like you say, Julia, where we, ha- we have a view of the entire purple magic castle with all of its inhabitants and how the whole ramshackle thing hangs together. And there's not any moment that we're kind of being asked to decide, is this person, whether it's the mother or another character, good or bad? And uh, and Willem Dafoe, I think, in a way sort of stands in for the audience in that sense. Like he's probably the most stable person on screen most of the time. He's the guy who keeps the whole thing running and who is constantly morally conflicted between the desire to take care of the inhabitants of his motel and also to keep the whole thing running itself and, you know, to sometimes have to eject people in order to make that happen. Mm, that's a brilliant point. Dan. And that's that's I was, you know, fighting the way through um, my own fog to try to get to something like that about about something about Defoe being recognizable as a movie star. And therefore, we understand that he's an actor in a way that these unfamiliar and quite natural performers in the rest of the movie aren't um helps us see him kind of as our surrogate or something or is this person who's kind of above and outside of this you know quite chaotic and roiling uh and poverty-stricken life that these other people are leading and but exactly who isn't the that, magic savior right he's, he's not he's not, not that, posited as that exactly and that's the way they marketed the film in fact they 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 tried to play off of Defoe, and they tried to play in the trailer. They tried to play off of the idea that he becomes this kind of grandfather figure, surrogate grandfather figure to them, and and is their um you know kind of middle class savior. And that is a terrible movie, and it's exactly the movie that that he didn't, that Sean Baker didn't make. It's such a scrupulously undidactic movie in every way, and um, uh, he didn't overplay the idea that this is unfolding in the shadow of Disney World, which is kind of overdetermined, uh, potentially. But in in the actual uh, execution of the film, turns out not to be at all. Though I do think we might want to discuss the very end of the movie. Yeah, we have to discuss the very ending, but I'm not going to discuss the content. I'm just going to say, as I did in my review, that the ending of this movie is divisive. It's very different than the rest of the movie and that there's a huge stylistic shift in the very last scene or sequence, I guess you'd say, for the last maybe three or four minutes of the movie. And, uh, well, for example, the uh, the camera work changes. The whole time the movie has been shot on 35 millimeter in this really beautiful kind of magic hour light where everything, as Julia says, is bathed in these bright pastels and like saturated kind of Disney colors. And uh, suddenly it switches to iPhone. <laughs> it's filmed with an iPhone, which is the way Sean Baker filmed his last entire movie, Tangerine. It was almost sort of like a stunt, like, can you make a feature film on an iPhone? And he did it. Anyway, so the quality of the image completely changes. The very first music of the movie kicks in that isn't music that the characters were listening to, the very first non-diegetic use of music. Things happen that I won't relate, but that's because of those stylistic changes seem to be taking place in maybe a different narrative world or, or, or psychological world than the rest of the movie. So I know for me, the first time I saw the movie, and I've seen it a couple times now, that ending was confusing but thrilling at the same time. I didn't quite know how to interpret it. I wanted to immediately see it again and talk to people about it. But it gave me this kind of surging feeling of possibility because it was such a a strange and beautiful way to end the movie. What did you guys think? Um, That surging sense of possibility is mixed with a crushing sense of inevitability and and failure like i think that it i I think it's a perfect way to end the movie uh it 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 is outside of the aesthetic of the rest of the film but 
totally in keeping with what I think the director was trying to do. I mean, that it's very intentional. Um, that 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 kind of aesthetic break with the rest of the movie is is quite conscious on his part, and it's meant that uplift is completely inseparable from a crushing sense of fate. Uh, and, and I think he pulled it off. I think thrilling is exactly the right word. I know some people really don't like the ending and feel like it's such a break with the rest of the movie that it leaves them in a strange hanging place. But at the very least, it's an ending that you come out of thinking and wanting to talk about. Well, I was startled. I didn't expect it to end there. Uh, but the whole movie is delivered with such confidence and such a sure hand that it's, it's clear that that's where Sean Baker wanted to leave us. And I... We'll be thinking about this movie for a very long time. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I just have to say it one last time before we uh, flow out of the segment, but just a, an incredible year for movies. I mean, I think between this Get Out and uh, Call Me By Your Name, three really astonishing movies that'll be with us, stay with me at least for a very long time. Um, in my mind, followed very closely by Phantom Thread. But I mean, just the, I mean, you know, and then everyone, BPM. I mean, just I, this was a really good year for movies. Okay, moving on. All right, before we go any further, Julia, I'm sure we have some business. Uh, What do you have? There are a few tickets left for our live show at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn, on March 7th at 7 p.m., sponsored by the upcoming miniseries Collateral on Netflix. This is our 10th anniversary show. Guys, we have been doing this show for 10 years. I know. I still haven't wrapped my mind around that fact. I also mean, this also means I've spent basically a quarter of my life talking to you guys about culture. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm not. It's what a joy. What a joy. What an education. I still don't know what directing is apparently, but uh, learning slowly week by week. <laughs> um, as part of our pre-show, Netflix is sponsoring trivia with comedian and writer Kate James. So prepare to put your knowledge of political thrillers, murder mysteries, and conspiracy storylines to the test. And then we'll have our live show starting after trivia at 7.30 p.m., that's March 7th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Check out Slate.com slash live for more information. And remember, Slate Plus members get a discount. Also, if you've been listening to the show over the last month or so, you have heard Aisha Harris, the wonderful Aisha Harris, who did our joint show with us in Sundance in Park City. Uh, you should check out and go subscribe to Represent, which is her show about representation in media, focusing on work by or about women, people of color, those in the LGBTQ community and other unheard voices or less heard voices. She dives deep in conversations with critics about the latest pop cultural news and interviews filmmakers and other creators about what they do and how they do it. Check out their recent episode, Wakanda Forever, in which she, producer Verilyn Williams and chief political correspondent Jamel Bowie, spoil Black Panther. Check out Represent wherever you get your podcasts. Can I just jump in with a double endorsement and just say I listened to that re- that Represent episode on Wakanda and it's so good. So as soon as you see Black Panther, rush to uh, your podcast feed and listen to them. I've been so sick and beset by civic duty that I haven't seen Black Panther yet. And so I have all of these podcasts and like other media that I'm like, I'm dying to listen to the Represent show about Black Panther. I'm dying to listen to Still Processing about Black Panther. But I need to fucking see Black Panther. That's your civic duty, my friend. Ugh. All right. This weekend, this weekend, this weekend. In Slate Plus, we'll be talking about cold remedies. Clearly, nobody should take cold remedying advice from me. But Steve will tell us about his special tonic. And we'll talk about the strange mix of superstition and science that uh, guides how we treat ourselves during the pestilential winter months. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and the work that we do. 
For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay. All right. Losing my voice after segment one. Let's get back to it. Between 1979 and 1981, 28 black children and young adults were found murdered in the greater Atlanta metro area. Atlanta Monster is a 10-part true crime uh, podcast that forensically examines the case uh, and the lingering ambiguity surrounding the supposed resolution of it in 1982 with the arrest and eventual conviction of Wayne Williams. Williams was an African-American man sentenced eventually to life imprisonment based on the murders of two adult men. He was never actually convicted for any of the child murders. This is only one of the many ambiguities that the podcast explores. Let's listen to a clip. From the beginning, there was a struggle to give these children equal news coverage and even thorough police investigations. Parents of the victims joined together, pleading for answers from the city. The number of missing children was growing, and eventually, the story gained national news coverage, and the Atlanta Police Department found themselves on the hunt for a killer. 57% of the blacks responding to the survey said they think the killings are part of a larger conspiracy against blacks. The same percentage of whites feel the killings are criminal acts with no connection to racial issues. The survey posed the question, do police treat blacks as fairly as they treat whites? The majority of the blacks said no. Most of the white respondents said the treatment from police is equal. And there were all kind of rumors going on back there. I can remember uh, some people in the black community thought it was the Ku Klux Klan that was grabbing these black boys. Um, Other people thought, you know, it's some kind of weird sexual deviant who's grabbing these boys. And there was all this conjecture, but no one ever really knew who it was. What was the pattern? Well, Julia, it seems to me uh, there are a couple of different things, this this, uh, podcast. I mean, to begin with, this is just a totally gripping uh, podcast, and it's getting at a couple of different things. One is the social reality surrounding the murders uh, and how that played into the way they were perceived and the way they were investigated or were not investigated. Um, and then secondly, the, you know, the question of whether or not they, in Wayne Williams, they got the correct uh, person. Uh, I think these can, can, or maybe should be taken somewhat separately. Anyway, what do you make of this? What a fascinating story. What an interesting set of conversations and tape. What a weird and sloppy job of editing it all together. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I agree. I find this podcast almost unlistenable in spite of the fascination with much of the story content. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm I'm not alone. I was having so much trouble tracking this. The transitions from like interview to interview are incredibly kind of clunky or the speakers are identified about one quarter of the time and the rest of the time they're not. Yeah, they're just sort of this random cacophony of voices. And then you never get oriented and learn who they are. You Half of the transitions between subjects seem to be um, chronological by time interview was done. Like you're, you're tracking the progress of the reporting kind of like then I went and talked to so-and-so. So-and-so suggested I talk to such-and-such um, so that you don't end up with a narrative that's framed – it's unclear what point is trying to be made or what story is trying to be told. Um, so as a as a kind of editorial experience, I found it frustratingly klutzy. On the other hand, 
this guy Payne Lindsay is our main Virgil through this world, although a slightly slightly bumbling one. Uh, and then Don Albright, uh, he's working with on it. And uh, Lindsay, we should say, is the host was the host of Up and Vanished, which was a very successful true crime podcast that uh, covered a cold case, a disappearance in I think more rural Georgia. Uh, and the attention to the case seemed to result in a break in the case and a new tip and some new arrests. And um, so he's he's an amateur gumshoe who's had at least one success already. And so now he's setting out to tackle this very big and very important case. This terrain is so rich. And then the opportunity and the reporting is pretty good. And then the opportunity to make it all have meaning or be satisfying seems squandered to me. But Steve, Dana and I have been dousing this with cold water over here. But you called it gripping in your intro. Did you have a different response? Well, I uh, I remember this unfolding uh, back, you know, in 79 and 80. And, um, and like most people who probably do thought of it as being sewn up, you know, pretty tightly uh and to have uh to have the both the narrative and the old wounds reopened and examined in a serious way strikes me as just totally compelling um i i, I agree that it's i mean you know i thought i hated ira glass and all the derivative talents um you know that voice and that attitude from this american life i thought i had had enough of it for a lifetime and then you encounter its complete absence um in people who are doing a somewhat amateur uh, facsimile of it and uh, I found myself wanting some of the smoothness and and um n- you know narrative cogency um of uh, elbow jogging talents of of this american life I've listened to the first several hours and I find the case itself so fascinating and so gripping you know, in in the same way that S Town, I mean, there's this. Yes, there's a true crime genre, right? And I resent the extent to which real life needs to be crammed into its rhythms and satisfy the expectations of you know, you know, the hungry audience. Um, uh, to have real life unfold as if it's a genre movie that that part that that part irritates me always. In that sense, I'm sort of grateful that it's a little messy. On the other hand, there's the sort of S-Town appeal of you are in this world of Atlanta in the late 70s, which in, you know, even even if you knew Atlanta now is kind of a feels like a, a foreign country in a way. I mean, it's just the, it's 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 the new South and the old South coming together. It's profoundly segregated in ways that are just shocking, you know, for 1980 uh it's you know what happened to the universe the the black universe of uh of atlanta thanks to these murders what the response of the police department was to it all of that to me is just is so worthwhile that even though it's presented in a somewhat desultory way it doesn't bother me in the, in the, in the least i think as it attempts to then hook you with the idea that the case should never have been closed and that that uh williams might not be guilty that's when I start to find it a little suspicious, but I want to stick around and find out whether there's substance to that claim. Yeah, Steve, I think if you're going to keep listening, you should at least listen through episode five when Wayne Williams himself enters the story as a character. As Payne Lindsay, the host, starts speaking to him in prison, there are some irritating things about that episode as well, including Payne Lindsay treating us to the full process of getting in touch with a inmate at a jail by phone, which involves a lot of voice messages and automated voices and beeping sounds. You seem to hear the whole process of the automated lady interrupting them every time they get cut off. 
the fact of him talking to the guy in jail is very surfaced in the production as opposed to what the guy in jail is actually saying. Exactly. Clearly, to get all this tape, they've they've spent months on this at least, and they've found all kinds of interesting people to talk about this, but then they have not marshaled what they found in any compelling manner. I mean, even like this is a case where the number of people murdered potentially by whoever is the assailant here uh, numbers in the 20s and the podcast like hops around among victims and family members of victims without ever I kept losing track of like which is this the same brother of the same victim or a different father of a different like you just can't in keep- a way that seems disrespectful to me even though the questions he asks are perfectly respectful and people seem to be willfully participating in the conversations with I'm him. grateful that someone's taking seriously the idea that maybe the person who's put away for these murders wasn't really you know, like the the notion that justice might be found in the true story here and that maybe the true story is not known. The whole endeavor seems worthy, which makes it, yeah, disrespectful is the word. It seems disrespectful of the gravity of the crime, uh, the mistakes in the investigation of that crime and the social and racial dynamics that may have led to it not being handled properly. Or just to treat a grieving relative of a murder victim as kind of sonic background for your story. I mean, the moments that I sort of didn't realize who was talking and it wasn't clearly identified and I had to go back several minutes or sometimes a whole episode to figure out whose voice something was. I just I wouldn't want my own voice to be represented and framed in that way. The the other thing this reminded me of, and this is It'll be weird to hold Payne Lindsay in the same sentence as Errol Morris because obviously Errol Morris is such a meticulous shaper of narratives. But there is something to me resonant between this and Wormwood and that it's just like I don't also know whether this is 10 hours worth of story or at the very least it's not 10 hours worth of story told this way. Mm -hmm. Like I wish that I could have seen – a 90 to 120 minute version of Wormwood that maybe had less Peter Sarsgaard, something I've never said about any other film and will never say about any film since. And that just like clearly and efficiently told the story in the same way here. This is such a fascinating story and such interesting terrain and so great that a true crime podcast would be grappling with the social dynamics and racial dynamics and everything else. And then it's just a mess. I think it's a mess. Okay. Well, the truth of the matter is the only one of us has uh, plowed all the way through this um, and it's not one of us three. It's our producer, Ben. Yeah. So uh, to be clear, Steve, out of um, 10 episodes, seven have been released. There's also an episode this week called The Vault, which is, um, I know, some some loose ends. I don't know if it actually qualifies as one of the, the 10 episodes or not. Um, but yeah, it, it's the show, I think, especially after the uh, first three or four, maybe five episodes really starts to change and um, becomes almost a star map of different conspiracy theories and takes. Um, There's all sorts of uh, interviews that are really interesting in themselves of people who either think that they saw an incident go down or um, were personally involved. There's one section uh, where they distort a guy's voice who who says that he knows um, the real truth about this whole thing being a KKK conspiracy. And somewhere along the line, it starts to feel a little bit irresponsible to me because um, one of the great joys of Serial was uh, sort of having this ride along with Sarah Koenig and her coming to understand the facts as you are and her her wrestling with the truth and going back and forth and 
in Atlanta Monsters, there's there's not really a sense that you're that these different stories and facts are ever amounting any into anything, and that Lindsay's job as a guide is not really being fulfilled. He seems to, uh, if not accept, just sort of let all of these different stories and ideas pass, um, really without criti- criticism or questioning of the credibility of the people who are saying them. Uh, it sort of, in a way, sort of starts to feel kind of like a Foucault's pendulum situation. Um, where you have all of these ideas, all of these uh, conspiracies. Um, at one point, they drop uh, a body into a river uh, for some reason. Um, and it goes a little bit off the rails for me. Benjamin, I just have to ask you this as a podcast producer and someone who listens to tons of podcasts and has strong opinions about them. What did you think of the music? I think the quality of the music is quite high. Um, I actually really like the music uh, as as music, but as sound design, I think it's pretty misused. I think that they're doing some kind of um, John Carpenter, Stranger Things kind of pastiche because this is a story that sort of takes place around the, a similar time. But, um, you know, there's nothing science fictional about this story. And so in, in a way, it kind of feels cheapening or fictionalizing. And I'm, I'm not quite sure how else to describe it. Um, and it, it really clashes quite a bit. I do think they smooth that out some, though. Um, in in the later episodes, the sound design is, is a little bit more subtle. Yeah, you hear it in a bit in the clip we played, this kind of plinky, repetitive synth. I mean, to me, it's just more the placement of it is sometimes almost disrespectful in the way that we were talking about with the interviews. For example, in an early episode, there's a moment that he reads out a list of the names of all the victims, like children, children who were murdered. And in the background, you have to hear scary plink plink music as if the names themselves didn't have enough moral weight. And that really bothered me. Yeah, there's something just cavalier about the production. And I think your point, Ben, that on the one hand, podcasting and the kind of accessibility of publishing can allow different people to tell stories and become interested in different stories is obviously a good thing about the world we live in. Now, Up and Vanished was a fairly independent podcast production and a big hit. This show is made in partnership with How Stuff Works, which is a big podcast entity in Atlanta. So this is no longer an indie job here. Um, But in general, the notion that people sort of outside the guild of professional storytelling would pipe up and get to tell stories is good. And I'm not I'm I'm not trying to, like, do territory guarding here. But given the gravity of the story and the gravity of the charges here, it just I think you've put your finger on it, Ben, like you want the person who's guiding you through the world which is full of kind of confusion and disagreement and red herrings to be skeptical and to be to not just kind of put everything out there and be like, you figure it out. You you want them to let you know and signal when they think something is a little bit fishy or something is, you know, perhaps interesting or perhaps really revealing. And he just the whole show just kind of feels like a collection box of found tape that's not ordered in any way. I agree. And the extent to which that's true makes you realize that podcast storytelling is a real art that we've all, you know, if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you've become used to in things like Slow Burn, the, the amazing Slate podcast about Watergate. We're used to this these very beautifully, solidly built and constructed stories. And mm-hmm. it, 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 basically, it's not an amateur's game anymore, you know? If you think about S-Town, right, which looked at kind of community dynamics uh, and a particular region in the South that was maybe alien to the sort of uh, potential audience. Uh, You know, I think we had a heated discussion about what we thought of that show, but certainly the craft that went into 
what you were learning in each episode in what order and what the transitions were and how those bits of reporting were stitched together, just the level of expertise that went into framing that audio experience was utterly different than what you hear here. All right. Well, I'm sure our listeners, uh, many of them have uh, tried uh, Atlanta Monster. We'd be curious to hear from you what your experience of the show was. Do you do, do you agree? Do you disagree? Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Okay, moving on. Worst Roommate Ever is a gripping article in the February 21st issue of New York Magazine. It's by William Brennan. It tells the story of a man named Jameson Bachman. Turns out to be something of a sociopath. A man who is a serial roommate who um, takes over the lives of the people that he's living with and ultimately the houses often using um, uh, the court system to do it. Let me let me read a paragraph from early on in the in the article. One evening, so Miller is the woman who owns the house. She's uh, taken on this roommate who's uh, now going by the name of Jed Creek. One evening, Miller came. He's been an ideal roommate for at least a month or so. One evening, Miller came home to find the living room lights wouldn't turn on. Creek had taken the bulbs and screwed them into lamps in his bedroom. A few days later, the six chairs at the kitchen table disappeared. Miller knocked on Creek's door, and when he opened it, she saw he'd fashioned them into a desk. Miller had assumed Creek spent his days in court. He presents himself as a lawyer. But neighbors said they saw him loitering on the property throughout the afternoon. He began sprinkling his speech with legalese. When they argued, he accused her of breaking, quote, the covenant of quiet enjoyment, a technical phrase Miller recognized from her days working for a real estate agent. When he found a cigarette butt in the toilet bowl one afternoon, he told her flatly he would not be paying the next month's rent. As a paralegal, he said, you should know about the warranty of habitability. Uh, and it just gets more and more on- ominous until he tells her flat out, this is my house now. Uh, it turns out, of course, this guy's a psychopath. He's doing, or I, I would amateurishly diagnose him as a psychopath. I think it's pretty safe to say. And that he's doing this serially with a number of different people. We, we uh, Julia, we had initially thought that we would talk about, we'd use this article as jumping off point to talk about roommates in general. This piece is so gripping and finally so bloody, it maybe se- seem hard to do that. One way we might do it is to say, aren't there two genres, sort of broadly speaking, two roommate genres? One is the nightmare roommate, so Pacific Heights, uh, Shallow Grave, this article, single white female. And the other is the super idealistic, Edenic roommate story of friends, Will and Grace, uh, to a degree, the odd couple. Um, Roommates, I think what interested us in this initially was the totally central place that roommates play in the um, pop culture universe. And we just realized we'd never talked about it. Well, the piece is horrifying and incredibly dark and, and not representative of generalized roommate experiences in life, thank goodness, or really even in pop culture. Um, and it raises questions, I think, about the kind of forces that drive roommate dumb, right, which are housing costs, income levels. Uh, and then I think at this moment, the ability to connect with total strangers you know nothing about on the internet and the relative frequency with which people now put themselves in a position to like meet, hang out with, go get a drink with, have sex with, or potentially just live with someone completely random that they don't know in any way at all. And the combination of those things seems to have added up for the opportunity for this total uh, depraved person to get his kicks by worming his way into people's homes and then possessing them 
chair leg by chair leg as he starts refashioning their furniture. I mean, the experience, the uh, story, no doubt, will become a movie, should certainly become a movie. And the way in which all of the small things that can bother you about a sane roommate or even a beloved family member with whom you share a domicile, uh, like, you know, banging the cups around or putting a plant in a different place can turn into a, a invasive and totally hostile act. I mean, I think that's part of what the power of the story is, is that um, once you live with someone, your sense of what normalcy is, is inevitably guided by what they do um, and figuring out where your negative responses are reasonable and where they are not reasonable is one of the things you always wonder, I think, when you're living with someone. And that's what this fellow is exploiting. Um, yeah, there's a gaslighting element to what he does, yeah. where it starts off with small things like moving the bath mat every day for no apparent reason, and then builds up to things I won't spoil, that are, but that are genuinely dangerous and terrifying. Yeah, Julia, I totally agree with all that. I take exception with one thing. I do think this is almost a genre. Maybe it's a subgenre of the, you know, at first ideal or seemingly okay roommate who turns into a sort of nightmare figure who you know swallows up your entire existence um through psyops and uh um and legal machinations but uh yeah there's something about dana isn't there something about both roommate genres that connects them which is you know that the 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 point is that you're sort of in between a nuclear family situation into which you know all of us are essentially born whatever its configuration and you're not yet in to whatever one you create if you ever create one for yourself it's this kind of you know potentially idyllic no man's land in between being a kid and being an adult in a way i mean it 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 so it has this teasingly open-ended aspect to it of eh, life is not a you know it's not an overly encumbered set of commitments uh, you might turn out to be a lover or a close friend, you might turn out to be a psychopath or a serial killer. Um, you know, in other words, the sort of the danger and the the and the um and the hope of it lie close together. So it makes sense that it would branch out into these two possible genres. You know, Joey and Chandler or Michael Keaton in Pacific Heights. Yeah, I mean, I like this the, the the dichotomy that you've set up between the two kinds of imaginary roommate situations. And I think in the case of this incredible worst roommate ever story. I mean, part of what's at work there is that you see that what divides those two categories has to do with financial stability and social class in a way. I mean, the actual class background of Jameson Bachman, who is this worst roommate ever character in this story, is, uh, is if anything, upper middle class. He's from a wealthy suburb in Philadelphia, but he's not a young guy starting out his life as we as we hear the beginning of this story. When he's going by the name Jed Creek and living with the first woman whose story we hear about, he's 60 years old, and she, I think, is in her mid-40s. And so it's a whole different time of life and points at a whole different world of kind of financial instability and transience that makes people have take on roommates at, at that age. And so even though that's kind of in the background of the story, it's not that this story is about what it's like to be middle-aged and still transient enough that you need a roommate. And that adds an extra edge of anxiety to, to the whole situation. Right. It's not actually about, you know, do we immediately post-co-ed, co-eds all, you know, making each other ramen. It's, right. It's presumably people who have had lives that, for whatever reason, didn't work out, right? He's obviously had many under different 
pseudonyms that he's used, but the women, sometimes women, sometimes men that he lives with also seem to, you know, maybe be coming from some different part of their life where they were more stable. And now they need to supplement their income by having a roommate. Right. No, exactly. And, and you know, in the sort of classic of the genre is the uh, is the kind of yuppie horror movie from the 90s, Pacific Heights. And the, the point of that is that they're an overextended young professional family who can only afford this, you know, beautiful San Francisco uh, Victorian if they take in a border and, you know, so it's sort of playing on a, a, a different kind of class anxiety, sort of fear of falling of the middle or upper, you know, aspirationally upper middle class or whatever. Um, what this article really reminded me of was the podcast Dirty John in the sense that, you know, <laughs> it was a whole other genre, which is the, the kind of overeducated, super entitled middle-aged white guy whose life hasn't added up to what he expected it should be. And so he channels all of his native intelligence into his cunning, into into his Machiavellian cunning in order to destroy the lives of others, which um, <laughs> I hate to say it feels very now in some sense. Julia, am I right? There's a kind of contemporary vibe to this social type. The uselessness of middle-aged white men. <laughs> well, and how you're the, referring uh, to that's a perennial uh, theme, I think. <laughs> I think it is, but it's got, gotten maybe a little acute because of recent events. I mean, you look at someone like I mean, not to drag it in, but I mean, you look at someone like Paul Manafort, and you just you sense that 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 there's no amount of the world that they think shouldn't be swirling down the sump along with their <laughs> own morals, you know. <laughs> Right, that limit's never reached, and 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 this is just a kind of petty chiseling version of what's now going on, literally on the world stage every day. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, that's I think one reason why this story is so resonant. In addition to uh, making everyone who's ever had a roommate feel better that the roommate was not this roommate. <laughs> <laughs> it also reminds me there was an amazing and similar story. Uh, in Mother Jones about this kind of serial squatter house possessor who was on the academic sabbatical circuit. We'll post a link to it in our show page. But basically there was a different person who demonstrated a very similar pathology who um, would house sit for people on sabbatical. And then when they came back, they'd find like their whole house stripped of furniture and everything moved into a locked, a padlocked garage and uh, the the house sitter asserting tenancy rights, which uh, at least in, I think, Oakland or San Francisco or somewhere in the Bay Area, wherever the Mother Jones story took place, um, actually had some legal heft. Like, this is a thing that people do mm. remarkably and horrifyingly, independent of the uh, social dynamics of the doer, I think. But I think your read is is part of why the story feels resonant now. All right. Well, the article is Worst Roommate Ever. It's in the February 21st issue of New York Magazine. It is a grim read indeed. Check it out. Tell us your roommate nightmare stories at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in the podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? I have two things, and I'll make it quick, but they're both important, significant PSAs of things that people must encounter if they have any interest in uh, in the, the topic. So one of them is, okay, a couple of years ago, I proposed to my editor at Slate a piece. I wanted to research something about what was happening to classic movies, classic Hollywood movies and other less algorithmically chosen by Netflix titles uh, in the era of Netflix, because I was really worried about 
essentially classic cinema becoming impossible to see unless you bought it on on DVD or it came around in a repertory theater. Um, I now no longer need to write that article because there's all kinds of wonderful subscription services that show great classic movies, the best of which is called Filmstruck, and I think I've maybe endorsed it on the show before. But there's some great news about Filmstruck this week, which is that it just acquired, is about to enter into a partnership with the Warner Archive. It was already in a partnership with TCM, which has a huge library of classic movies. It's now, I'm not quite sure if it's acquiring the entire thing or they're just going to start cycling their movies through, but they're going to get a whole bunch more classic movies. So if you go on Filmstruck right now and you can browse the site, whether you're a member or not, and decide whether to join, you'll find an incredible wealth of Hollywood movies and uh, and foreign films that were not there before and uh, and that might not be available anywhere else. So, um, so Filmstruck, if you don't have a subscription yet, is one of my endorsements. And the other is that Marilyn Robinson has a new book of essays. And to me, that's essentially siren sound <laughs> when I hear that sentence, because she is a fantastic writer who's not prolific at all in her career of, I don't know, I guess she's been writing since the, the 70s. And she's only written four novels, all of which are incredible, and a few books of nonfiction essays, including this new book of essays called What Are We Doing Here? Uh, a lot of these, like What Are We Doing Here, are compilations of either lectures she's given in places, maybe classes she's taught. She teaches at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Um but her nonfiction voice I love even almost more than her fiction voice. There's just something so unconventional about the way Marilyn Robinson speaks and writes and thinks. She never accepts the received wisdom for anything. She kind of takes it back to the, you know, she strips the house down to the joints and rebuilds it from the from the bottom up. And she just knows everything. I mean, she just has read classical literature and law and history of science. I mean, there's just nothing that she doesn't kind of weave into the into the Ooh, I've only ever read her fiction. I got to get into this nonfiction. Oh, yeah. I mean, even, you know, she occasionally will review a book or write an essay in the New York Review of Books or something, and those are always worth reading, too. But, yeah, her essays just have this uh, this wonderful sort of um, humanist quality. It's like Erasmus in our time or something. And uh, she cares a lot about theology, too, in her, in her novels as well. She writes a lot about Christianity in particular, but about sort of the big questions. What are we doing here is the, is the title of this book. And, uh at the same time, there's nothing lofty or abstract about her essays. For example, Obama and Trump enter into the very first essay in this book. So she's a person of her time, but also just someone who has a huge amount of kind of classical humanist knowledge behind everything she writes. And uh, there's just nobody like her. So what are we doing here? Essays by Marilyn Robinson. I'm, I'm uh, putting fantastic. it on my list. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I have an endorsement. And I Frankly, I will be disappointed in all of you, dear listeners, if you don't already know about this endorsement. But I wanted to share a little bit about my evolving relationship with a favored podcast, which is Still Processing. Still Processing is Wesley Morris's podcast. If yes. you've been a longtime listener of this show, you surely are familiar with Wesley. He's been a wonderful guest on our show many times. He's a brilliant Pulitzer Prize winning critic now at The New York Times. Um, and he has a podcast, a weekly culture podcast co-hosted with Jenna Wortham, who's a technology writer for The New York Times. Um, and it's great. And it's seasonal. They seem to be weekly for, I don't know, about half the year every so often. I can't quite Yeah, they just it. had a big hiatus and they're back now. Their approach has kind of evolved over their years of doing the show from – you know, they started with a format that I think was more similar to ours, kind of responding to a cultural topic in the news in a given week. And they still basically do that. They've had recent episodes about Black Panther, which I haven't heard yet, but I'm dying to hear and we'll listen to as soon as I uh, see that movie. Um, 
but they weave together history, you know, old things, and they really focus a lot on black culture and the response of black Americans to culture in a way uh, that's really rich and fascinating. Their response to the movie Baywatch, they did a great episode about the movie Baywatch that talked all about the African-American relationship to the beach and kind of the complicated history of segregated beaches. And that really helped illuminate uh, a different way of thinking about our cultural history in response to this extremely silly movie that maybe did not merit such deep discussion. But they always find a really interesting angle in. They've had great conversations about uh, the Justin Timberlake, Janet Jackson debacle of a decade or so ago when, when Timberlake played the Super Bowl. Uh, Bill Cosby, Whitney Houston, um, they just dive into topics really richly, bringing in a ton of context. And uh, I cannot send you fast enough to go subscribe to Still Processing. They also seem to enjoy each other's company so much. They laugh a lot. They just always seem like they're really digging being in a studio, getting to talk about these things together. I just love that they have a show. I love that this is the Times' show. I'm also somewhat bemused because Jenna Wortham is constantly recommending like crystals and unguents and things, which is maybe going to tie into our Slate Plus episode today. But like just at the beginning of every show, she's like, you need some magnesium. And I'm like, I love that the New York Times is just straight up prescribing folk remedies in this culture, <laughs> like clearly bogus folk remedies in this culture podcast. Sorry, Jenna, I love you. Um, but uh, anyway, it's yeah, it feels like a very specific conversation between people who have a real relationship and it's totally become serious appointment listening for me. So uh, probably many of you listen already, but if you do not, sign up. Still processing. It's so good. Anything with Wesley Morris. Absolutely. And anything. Uh, I love Marilyn Robinson's nonfiction. You guys killed it. So mine's going to be a stale afterthought since I can't compete anyways. Um, uh, I think I already endorsed, but it was so many years ago, I'm going to re-endorse the movie Shallow Grave, the greatest roommate movie of all time. Uh, my favorite movie from the 90s, by far, uh, it's Danny Boyle's, I believe, second feature after Trainspotting, or was Shallow Grave first? I'll leave that to the cinephiles. Um, but it is just, and it's also introduced the world to, um, so it was his first movie. It introduced the world to, to Ewan McGregor. It's just a flawlessly executed genre piece. If you have not seen Shallow Grave, do yourself a big freaking favor. It is so good. And then very quickly, I really like Crime Town, the podcast about the, it turns out, stunningly pervasive influence of the mafia in Providence, Rhode Island. It's an interesting case of how all of what we said about Atlanta Monster could be said about Crime Town, but spun positively, right? So it's essentially plunging you into the world of Providence, Rhode Island, um, a, a city dominated by its mafia, uh, elects this completely sketch mayor named Buddy Cianci. Cianci's kind of promising to clean up the city. In fact, he's just totally uh, implicated in in the uh, town's tendency to graft uh, and self-dealing and um, and frankly violence. Um, it it what I like about it. I've listened to most of it, certainly more than half of it, and it's. It's loosely built around the Buddy Cianci story, but it what it essentially is doing, and you, it's, an, it's a holistic effect, right? They don't really announce this, but it becomes clear as you go, is they're just showing you how the Long Island mob, the New England mob, penetrated every aspect of everybody's existence in uh, Providence, including Brown University, Julia Turner. I know that you are a bag man uh, and 
uh, played the vig when you were um, pretending to study uh, semiotics at Brown as an undergrad. You can't fool me. You're actually in episode seven. Um, but uh, anyway, it's I kind of I'm t- I'm taken with it. I mean, I thought I was completely over the wise guy glamour. You know, the kind of you know. I just thought, you know, we've had Goodfellas, we've had The Godfather, we've had The Sopranos. I just didn't think there was any place to go. And yet these voices are so incredible. And and they've had years, decades in some cases, in some cases decades in prison to think about what this kind of reign of terror that was also kind of familiar and comforting to most of the people of to many of the people surprisingly many of the people in providence rhode island but they've had years to kind of marinate in the and 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 introspect over what what this uh weird reign of sort of terror was like and they have really interesting things and really reflective things to say about it i i have to say i was skeptical and now i'm completely seduced by crime town i gotta listen to it i've heard a couple things about this show obviously having gone to brown buddy sancy was the subject of like incredible rumor and lore the particular providence that i arrived in was actually fairly uh, quote unquote revitalized by political forces that were sometimes attributed to cnc's leadership uh, and and sometimes uh suggested to have been in spite of them and in a classic myopic uh, gown gown not town focus of my time i never bothered to figure it out so i'd be curious to listen to the show and figure it out my favorite rumor about buddy Nancy, which is sadly not true is that his wife's name was nancy ann like everybody at brown just thought his wife's name was nancy ann Nancy. and <laughs> like i've only learned five years ago that that's not true and his wife's name was sheila and i was so heartbroken like i just took <laughs> his gospel that he was nancy Nancy. Nancy. um i've also heard that that show features, I'm going to double backflip your double endorsement into my second endorsement. So we all get two today. <laughs> That's Ben's punishment for us recording a fairly swift show. Um, it, the And I think it is also a re-endorsement for me. Um, I think as ambient music in the show, they play the song Rhode Island is Famous for You, which is if you... Uh, spend any time in Providence, a song that you know, because it's the only song about Rhode Island. And the whole joke of the song is that every other state has something they're famous for, but Rhode Island has nothing. Uh, so it's like copper comes from Arizona, peaches come from Georgia, lobsters come from Maine. Uh, we- is it an old standard kind of thing? It is an old not standard. It is, I mean, it's a standard if you're in Rhode Island. <laughs> um, but but it basically... But who sings it? There the was, most a, famous there was a Blossom Deary. Oh, love her. We've This has become like a family standard. It's apparently a song from a like non-hit musical called USA from the 40s that may have even had songs about other states. Um, And uh, it's just like a funny patter song that we play for the kids that our kids have like basically memorized. So their their versions and understandings of states are entirely shaped by the goofy lyrics of the song. Um, The chorus of which after relaying that uh, pencils come from Pennsylvania and it, it, the song gets increasingly broke as it goes on is that you know that you but you you come from Rhode Island little old Rhode Island is famous for you um, so it's like a little love song for Rhode Island people so uh, Rhode Island is famous for you by Blossom Deary don't let Mandy Patin- don't download Mandy Patinkin's version not as good or as he's known <laughs> in our car rides the man we sometimes listen to the lady and sometimes to the man but we, but I would recommend the lady, Blossom Deary, and her version. I love it. All right. Uh, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Uh, you're welcome for singing with this voice at this juncture in my life. <laughs> Just what everybody was hoping for.
Uh, all right. Well, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. We have an executive producer at Slate Podcast. He's Steve Lichtai. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Mecca. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Coats come from Dakota, but why should you be blue? For you, you come from Rhode Island. Don't let them ride Rhode Island. It's famous for.